Welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potts, your host, a visual arts teaching artist. Have you also been through every emotion this week? I have been a mess, but democracy prevailed, and that gives us a way forward. We do have a lot of work to do to seismically shift our systems of oppression and to educate folks about the basics of science, among other things. I hope that the conversations I share here continue to inspire you as artists and educators to keep going and to keep pushing your work in both of those realms towards justice and equity, compassion, and critical thought. As Kamala Harris said tonight, we the people have the power to build a better future. Our featured artist this week is Laura Ann Calusi. She's a mother, artist, and teacher who is always making things. Her work is process-based and focuses on the intersection of childhood joy and finding one's place in the world without losing that joy. She graduated from St. Joseph's University with a BA in Fine Art, where she studied photography and sculpture. She currently teaches art to pre-K through 8th grade students at Norwood Fontbonne Academy, a private school in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her work has been displayed in online galleries and -and brick-and-mortar stores in the Philadelphia area. You can spot her in a crowd with her paint-splattered boots covered in glitter, picking up random objects that she finds inspiring. She hopes to bring a sense of wonder and awe through her teaching and her own art, helping all of us remember times we felt pure joy. In her statement, she says, I believe we are on earth to experience moments, moments that make us feel as if we are a part of the world around us instead of passing visitors, moments which are perfect in their beauty, freedom, discomfort, passion, power, or restriction. My art not only represents powerful moments I have experienced, but the process of making art is some of my greatest moments of all. In creating art, I am at total peace. I am all at once separate from the burdens of the world and tangled in the earth's history and power. Ooh, I love how she uses fabric in her paper mache sculptures, creating such an interesting blend of quilting and sculpture. The forms and material are reminiscent of stuffed animals, but these are not soft sculptures. They're hard paper mache, and some are nearly as large as Laura's young children. You can see more of her work on her website at lauracalusi.com or follow her on Instagram at lauraannkalusi. And I will link to both of those in the show notes. I am loving hearing from more of you and being able to share more work by incredible teaching artists. 
If you want to be featured, submit your work at teachingartistpodcast.com slash opportunities. You can also find the link to submit work to our current open call, juried by the amazing Chloe Alexander, or the hapless printmaker. We are so excited about this exhibition. We will be offering feedback to all artists who submit, and we'll also consider all artists for future opportunities. Maria Coit and I will be creating several lesson plans based on the themes in the show and on individual works in the show. Eight artists will also be invited to do an Instagram Live studio visit. For more info or to submit work, go to exhibit.teachingartistpodcast.com or feel free to reach out to me with any questions via email or on Instagram. Today's interview is with Natasha Rivet-Karnak. Natasha and I have known each other for years now. We met while studying abroad during our junior year of college at the University of Tasmania in Australia. This was such a formative time, so far from home at the edge of the world. We took a book arts class there together and spent inordinate amounts of time in the print and paper studios and on the docks where the art school sits. We reconnected nearly 10 years ago in New York when we were both working within the realms of art and climate change, and we've stayed semi-in touch since then as we've both moved around the world and had children. Her focus on personalized education as a primary reason for homeschooling really resonated. We talk about the overlap in theory of TAB, teaching for artistic behavior, and this method of letting children initiate their own questions as a way of learning. Natasha articulated so well the idea of curating the learning experience, creating the environment for learning to happen, and occasionally adding new and exciting materials or ideas into it. And Natasha talks about what she calls project-based learning, but in the U.S. this is a really specific pedagogy based in student voice and choice. So I just wanted to mention that I think what she meant was more like teacher-directed learning or what we sometimes call cookie-cutter projects. Natasha is a curator and writer with a focus on arts and culture and education. She runs a blog that supports writers and other creatives to find practical and artistic resources about motherhood. She is published in the International Journal of the Arts in Society, Edinburgh University's Dangerous Woman Project, Resurgence Magazine, and elsewhere. Her project, Doing Nothing, a collaboration with London-based photographer Grace Gelder, documents Natasha's experience of early motherhood in Bonn, Germany. It was presented at Carlisle University's Visualizing the Home Conference and is archived at Goldsmith University's Women's Library. Natasha supported Chief Curator Jane Trowell at Platform London on the exhibition Sea Words, Climate, Capital, Culture at Arnolfini in Bristol, UK, one of the leading contemporary art centers in Europe. The exhibition also included a program of over 80 events and workshops. Natasha is a home educator. Until COVID, her family split their school year between Costa Rica and the UK. 
Her family also participated in The Greenhouse, an outdoor education project the Daily Mail called Britain's Most Hipster School. She has an MA in Arts and Cultural Management from Dartington College of the Arts in the UK and a BA in Interdisciplinary Art, Violin Performance, Visual Art, and Creative Writing from the University of Minnesota. Natasha is originally from Minneapolis and currently lives in Somerset in the UK with her husband and two children. I am very excited to talk with Natasha Rivet karnak and she is a homeschooling mom, an artist, a writer, and a longtime friend. So really excited to hear your perspective. And I always like to start just with kind of background. So maybe if you could share how you got into art, and then also like your version of teaching right now is teaching your own kids and sort of how that has evolved. Okay, my background with art is maybe through a slightly roundabout way. So I grew up playing the violin. So that was really my, that was my world for, I started at four and I studied all the way through college and beyond. So that was really my artistic world. And my parents were both professors of literature and my mom was an art collector. So I lived in this kind of classical art world for a very, very long time. Beautiful. And then when I got to university, it was just like this real explosion of creativity. I was just so excited to see so much on offer and I just couldn't help myself. I started taking <laughs> art classes and writing classes. And, and of course you have your independence. So I just started to feel this sense of exploring new parts of myself. And that was really a really exciting time. And then as far as the education side, I think because my parents were both teachers, I sort of just grew up with imagining that everybody was a teacher. I just didn't, I just, that was my world. Everybody was a teacher and, you know, school holidays, I just sit in the back of my mom's classroom. That's what I did. So I think I was always, and as I got older, I was always interested in how you could teach better and what different models of teaching were like. And, you know, I read like all of Rudolf Steiner's essays in high school, not because I'm a Steiner person, but I just thought it was so interesting that you could do things differently. Mm -hmm. So I guess those like those two flavors have always been with me, but the the kind of specificity of the work I do now emerged a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And could you talk about the work you do now? Yeah. So I started out, I did a master's in arts and cultural management in the UK, and that was really exciting because that was a totally different artistic world. It was all about performance and really interdisciplinary art. And really, it was a really sort of radical place. And that was really exciting. I'd never experienced that before. And I became really excited about curating as well at the same time. And there was there were theater departments and writing departments and art departments, and they there was no hierarchy between them. So you could just work with people really as and when you wanted to. So it was a really creative time for me. And then I moved to London and I worked as an independent curator there. And then I had children, so everything changed. (laughs) (laughs) Then it was like the explosion of children in my life completely changed everything. And at the same time that I was having children, we were traveling for my husband's work and we ended up living in New York where, where we saw each other again. And then we were in Germany and it just, so it was a really disrupted time for me creatively. And I get, and I felt really destabilized in my identity anyway. And so at that time I actually did, I was doing a couple of years of PhD research because I thought that 
that would be the most logical thing to do as a parent because I thought I can't do event management anymore. And I'm not in London with artists. We moved down to the countryside. So I was just trying to adapt. And I, I didn't, what I didn't realize that I would be so utterly sleep deprived that writing academically became so painful. Mm-hmm. It just, re, it became really untenable. And when my son was born, I just felt this real resurgence of my strength. I had a really amazing home birth with him. I was really fortunate. I didn't have the same kind of birth with my daughter. So it was really a really like powerful moment for me. And I just said, I'm going to strike out on my own. I need to do something different. This doesn't work for me. Uh, And that's when I started writing about motherhood and reviewing books about motherhood and just feeling like I wanted to advocate for creative mothers because I felt so, so different from other mothers. I felt like I wasn't going back to work in the same way. My work was always with me, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't just at home. It wasn't like I had no work that was calling me. I felt like this hybrid sort of, and it was really important to me to to reach out to those people. So that's that's what I'm still doing now. I'm running that blog. Oh, I love that. And I love, I feel like it resonates with so many creative mothers, this feeling of like losing yourself, losing your identity a bit, and then finding it again. And that push and pull of what, like, what can I do in this creative world, while also mothering and refining what who I am. (laughs) Yeah. And there's so many practical things and emotional things all happening at once. Yeah. So writing was like just a practical solution to me because there weren't people around me anymore and there weren't and I couldn't be out doing events so I thought well I have a pen and a piece of paper so <laughs> now I can do that it was just a practical solution but there's also the, all the emotions that you're working through and you need that the right creative tool I just felt like academics just couldn't kind of get get to the core of the the thing that I needed to express hmm. and it was so so important at that time to have that avenue of expression because I felt like I was shrinking hmm. as a as a mom and so I needed to have some place where I felt really at home yeah yeah it's a, it's a hard season it is do you feel like you're kind of like coming out of it now your kids are they're still young but they're like a little bit older you're kind of over the newborn hump (laughs) yeah for sure when I talk about it now I think that poor woman (laughs) I just can't believe how much I carry down my shoulders you know I just say okay we're moving to a new country fine let's do that I didn't I I just I was just so adaptable and I just said well we'll make it work and we did and it was really exciting we had lots of adventures I'm really grateful for all that experience but it's nice now to feel like I'm building something I feel a lot more like I can take time to do some of the things that are maybe a little more complex that require a little bit more time that require building relationships Mm -hmm. and that's nice it definitely feel a lot more whole than I did before yeah and do you feel like all of the moving that you did when the kids were young is part of why you gravitated towards homeschooling? Or was that something you felt like you were always going to to do? No, I definitely did not feel like I was always going to do that. Like I said, <laughs> I, I had... A lot, I was really excited about different ways of learning and being educated yeah. for sure. But I had, I mean, honestly, when it came to my children, I hadn't really thought that deeply about it when they were little. I was just so immersed in that season of life. 
And what happened was we just fell into it because when we came back to the UK, our place at the local school was gone. I hadn't realized that that happens. I thought we had, we'd, we'd left a house here. And I thought when we move back to the house, we'll just put them in the school near our house. That's what will happen. Right. I didn't really think beyond that. And it turned out it doesn't work that way. Oh. So once that happened, I was, again, I was in this adapting mode. I was like, okay, well, what can we do then? What can we do? And that's when we joined this education project. Mm-hmm. And the intention wasn't exactly to homeschool, although there were a lot of homeschool kids there, but I, it was more to, for them to have a social experience and be educated in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. But then we were exposed to a lot of the ideas around homeschooling and that sort of began that journey. Yeah. And could you talk more about what that journey looks like for you? If there's, especially if there's any recommendations you would have or like tips for, and I feel like there's maybe, there's a big group of people that are kind of forced into a version of kind of homeschooling. Like for me, it's helping my kid through online schooling. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of parents are in that boat now, but There's also people that maybe because of that are gravitating towards actual, like legit homeschooling, not just this forced, like sort of semi, like the kids are at home and they're learning, but like real homeschooling where you're really facilitating all of their learning and figuring out which systems work for you. Yeah, totally. I mean, first, the first thing I'd say is it's just not fair on parents, this situation. Like that that is not a true expression of what homeschooling is and nobody right. should be in that situation and it's not joyful and you shouldn't feel any pressure <laughs> to achieve anything in my opinion in that yeah. all you need to do is worry about your mental health and getting through the day and being okay as a family I think in that's in that scenario I actually have had seasons where I've had my kids in school so both my kids were in school for part of lockdown. Yeah. So I experienced the online schooling and I will just say that it's not homeschooling in, mm-hmm. in the sense that I understand it. I know everybody has a different definition and that's part of the spirit of it. And I really welcome any definition. But for me, the spirit of homeschooling is a very personalized education and it's mm-hmm. the freedom to educate otherwise. And the the essential core of it is really using the holistic setting of the home. So you're not bringing the institution into your home. Rather, you're using the context of your home for learning to emerge. So learning might look really different. Bodies learning at home might look quite different. They might be on the couch. They might be lying on the floor. It's not such an institutional setup. And also they may be... The, the, the hours are much, much shorter of any formal learning. Not everybody does sort of formal learning in homeschooling, but I do. And I don't find I need to do very much of it because you're doing one-on-one time. So, you know, an hour or two is enough. Mm-hmm. A lot of the other learning happens kind of out in the wild, so to speak. <laughs> you know, you <laughs> might go, I mean, these days it fluctuates, right? How much we can go out. We might be able to go to a museum. We might not. But it could even just be being in your own garden, having conversations. A lot of homeschool is about children initiating their own questions rather than questions being initiated toward them. Mm. And a lot of learning that gets really consolidated happens through that model. It happens through the need to answer a question and the question being satisfied. So in a way, it feels like it feels very curatorial to me. I don't feel like I'm orchestrating lessons but it feels more like 
I'm sort of curating the space and what emerges in that space, I try to facilitate and satisfy to the best of my ability. And sometimes you do throw in little kind of interruptions and interesting materials or exciting possibilities. But I find it works best when there's the least amount of pressure and the most space to kind of emerge as a whole person. So it's not quite so compartmentalized into subjects. Yeah. So it's quite different from school. Yeah, but I I do see and I feel like I talk to a lot of art teachers that follow the TAB model teaching for artistic behavior, which is a method of teaching that is very in line with this idea of children initiating their own questions and their own ideas and that you're sort of facilitating a space and an environment where they can do that and they have access to whatever materials they need to explore their idea. And I love that, just that way of phrasing it, that they're really initiating their own questions and that you're like the curator of this space and this learning. Yeah, I've actually, I'm a big fan of your podcast. So I've I've heard you talk about (laughs) this teaching for artistic behavior. And I was like, yes, this feels so true to me. And that feels really resonant with the way that we work at home. I really understand that. And it feels It feels like to me, children have a real inner life and they really need to be taken seriously and allowing them the freedom to understand their own boundaries and their own curiosities and their own rhythms. I think that is a very, a really enduring gift that you can give to them. Yeah, absolutely. I know Zoe did, for example, a lot of project-based learning, art project learning at school. And I just, I don't think it worked very well for her. It was one of the things that I felt she, she, you know, she came home and just sort of said, well, you know, the the teacher said I I didn't do my sunset correctly. It had the wrong colors. You know, (laughs) oh my goodness. Oh no. So I, I often felt like the projects they were given were more for the parents' benefit than for the children. So they could have a uniform picture on the wall and there would be, you know, a lesson that would be tagged to pop art or impressionism or something like that, that would have the kind of tick box. Yeah. But I didn't feel that it did much for the children. And I I saw in my daughter, especially, she came home from school really inhibited artistically. And it took a long time to come back to the the main thing was really enjoying her mistakes again. She suddenly became really anxious that she was making mistakes. And Mm -hmm. so we did a lot of crumpling paper up and tossing it away and ripping stuff up and taking lines for walks and these sorts of things to just make it feel less precious. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important for children too, to feel permission to fail. Yeah. Yeah. I've been wrapping, trying to wrap my head around how to continue some version of tab and some version of this, like really, really pushing, making mistakes and doing that while teaching through a video, like not even a synchronous lesson, but just here's a video that you watch on your own time. So there's no real interaction. So trying to figure out how to do that. And one of the things I'm doing, which hopefully hits, is just saying like, making mistakes is one of my favorite things. I love making mistakes because it's a way that I learn and I figure things out. Like if I make a mistake, sometimes that mistake is actually the most beautiful thing I've done that day. Yes. Or sometimes it's horrendous, but then I know like, okay, don't put those colors together again. (laughs) 
yeah. <laughs> or, or yeah. like that's not the right material for this. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Just modeling for them, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Feeling like they have permission and the space to do that, I think is so important. They pick up on all those emotional cues and they, they sense whether it, whether it's okay and they feel safe to do that. So that's great. Yeah. Or then trying, trying to like make a little mistake and work it back into the artwork. So also modeling that, how do you, oops, I drew that, that line didn't go where I thought it was going to go. That, that wasn't what I intended. Okay. Yeah. What can I do to change it and like, just keep going? Yeah. I think that's great because I find children are so intimidated when you sort of show them the final product and then sort of say, okay, now you do that. Right. And it just feels like, I don't really see what, (laughs) I don't really see the learning (laughs) that comes out of that. They might get a nice product, but I think that kind of learning is often easily forgotten. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it's not authentically their own idea. Yeah. I feel like that's what it comes down to. Like there's maybe some room for that type of teaching within like, okay, we're going to practice a certain technique. And this is, you know, this is the result you might get with practicing this technique, but it's not the result isn't important. But it's still I mean, I don't know, I I guess I'm trying to like, (laughs) advocate for something I don't actually believe in. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's really hard in a group setting too. I think that is the luxury of homeschooling is you just have one or two or three or four however many number of children you have but it's probably less than 20 yeah (laughs) (laughs) hopefully (laughs) and it's I think for example if they like my daughter has a real interesting graphic novel so now I see her trying to make cartoons and trying to make books that have that kind of humor in them and so now I think she might be right for maybe doing a lesson about that. But I think that comes from a very different space because it supports an investigation that's already happening. Mm-hmm. That's one of the luxuries of homeschooling where the, it can be sort of self-initiated. There's that sort of self-directed flavor to it. Mm-hmm. But it's, I really have so much respect for classroom teachers because I don't know how I would, I don't know how I would handle that situation. It's just not possible, of course, to, to tailor make lessons to 20 children. So I just, I have so much respect for that classroom teaching. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely a huge challenge with trying to figure out how, how to have it be really personalized. And I definitely don't have the answers, (laughs) but the way that I've kind of wrapped my head around it is to offer technique demonstrations and trying to make them really sort of open-ended. Like I will show a specific little technique that doesn't result in a final product. It's just like, this is how you do, I don't know, this kind of watercolor glazing and you could use it for all these different things. Now, if you're interested in that technique, go ahead and use it for your idea. If you're not, like continue on with whatever it is that you were excited about. That sounds great. Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like it's tricky because you might spend five or 10 minutes doing that demo and be struggling to like keep some kids engaged while others are like really into it. So finding that balance is always tricky. Figuring out, well, do I just let the ones that aren't interested right now go without even watching? Or do I kind of like require everybody, we're going to do a demo and we'll do different techniques throughout this time but you have to like pay attention to each demo. Maybe some will be exciting. Maybe some won't. (laughs) Yes. 
Yeah, and I imagine classroom management within that is really complicated because if you're at home, you might allow a child to wander off outside, you know, but you can't you can't do that in a classroom. They can't just wander off outside. Yeah. So I can imagine that that kind of it's that pull between form and freedom that must be it's an ongoing negotiation. Yeah, I think the time is also, for me, that's always a huge issue that if I had a class of, you know, 25 or 30 kids, which is my usual summer 34, if I had them like all day long, I would be totally into letting whoever, letting them kind of come and go and learn and play and, you know, create for the entire time. But I have them for less than an hour a week. So that yes. time is super precious. So that's, yeah. that's just another like tricky thing to navigate in the classroom. It's such a crime that the arts are such a small part of their, of their week. Yeah. Because that is, that is such a pressure. I can't imagine how you navigate that. Yeah, it's definitely tricky. Do you feel like you like work art into a lot of what you're doing at home? Is it, is it kind of part of many lessons or, you know, I say lessons, but I'm picturing, you know, like you said, that there's very little sort of formal instruction, but when Zoe or um, when your kids are like doing whatever it is that they're doing, whatever they are interested in, do you find that art is a big part of a lot of the things that they're doing and that they're learning? Yeah. I mean, I think it must be so individual to each child, but definitely my daughter is really she's her her artistic expression is very visual for sure Mm -hmm. and she I think she really associates it with relaxation so Mm -hmm. she has a lot of days where she will I do try and sort of fly a kite and just see if things land sometimes things that I'm interested in especially because then I can join her yeah so for example I was really interested in botanical illustration for a while so I just I just got out a few books of botanical art and some gouache and just kind of, I like to try and make it tempting, you know, lots of colors and papers and I put on some music maybe. And so it's a, it's a time, it's a really connecting time. Mm -hmm. And we do, we do all sorts of different projects. We've done tie dye, we've done mono prints, but I don't, I think what's really amazing about classroom instruction is there's a, I imagine anyway, that there's more, it's a bit more methodical Mm-hmm. I definitely follow my own curiosities. We've got a little home studio. And so I just try and stock it up with everything I'm interested in, which yeah. is a huge range of things. <laughs> and they come out at arbitrary times. So I sometimes worry that she's getting a really idiosyncratic artistic education. There's not a kind of method in that, mm-hmm. in that sense. But I think the, on the positive side, she associates it with really good feelings. And I think in a way, education is is that. It's what's left after the information is gone. It's the feeling that you're left with. Mm. That's the part that endures and that allows you to carry your education on through adulthood, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's beautiful and a beautiful way to think about it. thinking of your own artwork like I often ask teachers whether they share their artwork with students but in your in your position it's like of course they see what I'm what's <laughs> what I'm great doing. about my kids is since, <laughs> since having kids I've really rediscovered as I think so many parents do 
the love of drawing, or maybe they don't, but I definitely <laughs> did. And when I when I started reading them picture books, because I just I loved them. So I started buying them for myself. They were so the writing was beautiful, the pictures were beautiful, it was so simple. And it especially after my experience in academics, it suddenly just distilled this art into something so innocent in the best sense of the word in that kind it, it just reminded me of the reason that I loved art to begin with it just expressed the purest emotion I just really fell in love with illustration and picture books and the really reassuring thing about my children is as I began studying drawing and painting again they were like mommy this is amazing oh my oh. It, wasn't I mean, it really wasn't it was really <laughs> exploratory and tentative and cartoony and un, unsure of itself, you know, but I was just so enthusiastic. I just kept plowing on and they were, they were just great for my confidence. Oh, you have your little cheerleaders. Yeah. <laughs> I it love was, that. It was just great the way that they, they were just so willing to enjoy it just for its own sake. They didn't look at it through this lens of comparison or achievement mm-hmm. or, genre or any of these things that we pick up in art school I think sometimes art school can set you back <laughs> you know yeah. the, all the kind of baggage that you you take with you from that it was really nice to feel more innocent mm-hmm. and have you as you've kind of gotten back into painting and drawing have you been taking courses in it or have you just been kind of exploring and experimenting and what does that look like coming back to it for you? I suddenly really became interested in what happened somehow in my education I felt like words and pictures split at a certain point Mm. and I became really interested in that as I watched my children make art because I realized for a long time it didn't split for them they were sort Mm -hmm. of all one and the same and I got really interested in Linda Berry And she does these art classes with four-year-olds. And she talks about this split, that there's a time when you're four, when they're still yoked together. And something happens to adults where they get pulled apart. Mm -hmm. And I became really interested in just drawing as as another language. Mm -hmm. And it feels really, really important to me that we all continue to draw, that it's another way of communicating. It's another language. And I think it's a real crime that it's only an hour a week that children get in visual art. And so one of the amazing things about the world now is I could do things online suddenly. Because when we were traveling, somehow it must have been available, but I didn't didn't feel so widespread. And now I just felt there's so many resources online. So I use Carla Sondheim's videos. I don't know if you've ever seen them. And she, in particular, she did one called Words and Pictures that I used. Oh, yeah. Which really helped me kind of bridge those those two worlds together. And I joined Skillshare and I used their videos and I joined a local art club and worked with people locally. So that was that was nice to make it a bit more social before lockdown. Yeah. But, so you know, so much of it really happened on the computer. And I was really grateful for that, for that ability to suddenly be connected with artists because we live in the countryside and I didn't I felt really far away from that. So I did. I would go to London for 90 minutes from London. And I would go and I would see friends who had various creative jobs or go to the Tate. But it was always like a, a fix <laughs> than kind of a kind of ongoing relationship. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have so those, those weekly videos and those weekly prompts. Mm-hmm. Really almost as motivation just to keep 
going. Yeah. And also just to feel that you have access again, because I think like those toddlerhood years of motherhood, you feel so isolated. Yeah. You feel like, well, I can't go out and do anything. So I'll just wait, I guess, mm -hmm. until I can do that again. And I suddenly feel like, I, you know, obviously I have more freedom to go out now, but they are still young. And there's that feeling that, okay, well, I can still have an evening in where I watch a class for an hour and I draw and I paint. And that's a huge freedom to me because those classes are often connecting to artists in Boston or Philadelphia or New York. And I can't get in a plane to go to the <laughs> art class there. Right. So that's great. It's, to me, it's felt like a much more democratized art school. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And the, when you were talking about the idea of words and pictures kind of splitting and also drawing as a language, it immediately made me think of what my daughter just started. She's in kindergarten and they started writer's workshop, which I don't know if they do similar, if they have similar things in the UK, but it's reader's workshop. Writer's workshop are, I guess, kind of these methods of teaching reading and writing that are ideally more sort of student-led. And the way the teacher introduced it was, and they sent to parents ahead of time, like, we're going to do writer's workshop don't be intimidated that your like four or five-year-old should be writing full sentences or full words. For us, the beginning of that is that they're drawing pictures and they're coming up with ideas that they want to express. And then they might label some of those pictures if they're able to, but you as a parent should not be helping them, <laughs> like let them do it, let them sound it out and figure out the letters. And if it's wrong, that is okay. Like encourage what they're doing and that they're expressing themselves. But I, I was really interested to hear, like I, I, as an art teacher, I had never even heard how classroom teachers teach other subjects. So oh, that's, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, like that's been interesting for me, especially an art teacher who like I'm a teaching artist, which means I didn't actually go to school for teaching. Right. I only went to school for art. So maybe, I don't know, if you're an art teacher who has a degree in education, let me know if you actually learn this stuff. But <laughs> I definitely didn't learn any of the non-art pedagogy or like methods. So just yeah. hearing that they, they push students to connect drawing and writing and like do both as part of lear learning how to write was really interesting to me. I think that's great. That's really great. One of the things that Carla Sondheim did in her videos was just to you use words in different ways or make them really big or really small or upside down or mm. or make them impossible to read it was really wow. interesting to play with that and i started doing that with my daughter and it really freed up her writing because i think writing can be taught in this sort of again kind of product oriented way without an attention to what they're trying to express and in in a way the science of writing is not that difficult it comes along but the the art of it is really the art of listening it's having somebody who will listen to your narration and listen to your thoughts and listen to your sense of humor jot down your turn of phrase that's your writerly voice it's just how you mm how you speak and how you how you articulate yourself. So I think it's really exciting, this idea of trying to just expand the notion of writing. So writing is drawing, writing is talking. Writing is not just typing. Writing yeah. is not writing cursive. You know, if you when you become a professional writer, you don't worry about your handwriting. <laughs> the amount of attention we give to children's handwriting, I think is a little unnecessary when sometimes I give my daughter this exercise where we just put a two minute timer on and she writes and 
I mean, it's just all over the shop, you know, it's like at an angle, <laughs> huge letters and the tiny letters and there's no punctuation. Yeah. And then later she yeah. sits down and, and writes it out neatly. So she likes how it looks, but that's, mm. to me, that's the spirit of writing is just giving mm. yourself that permission to forget about punctuation and the size of your letters and all of that. And sometimes a bit like teaching art in a too, in my opinion, to pressurized environment with a kind of project based learning. I think you can do the same with writing. You so it's, there's such an emphasis on the product, mm-hmm. and I just don't I don't see how that gives them sort of the lifelong love of it because ultimately mm-hmm. that that must be the object of their education, isn't it? Simply to carry on because you know even from going to art school, right? It can knock your confidence. Mm-hmm. You can you can get overwhelmed and you can feel like you're not good enough and you're making too many errors and so building their confidence is really important. Yeah, it's vital. And building their adaptability, their ability to be flexible and to think creatively and to overcome those mistakes. All of that is so important. Yeah, and I think the, the fun of homeschool is you can you can have like little bits of unexpected success that comes in. I got fascinated with typewriters recently. And so a typewriter arrived at our house one day because I spent too long on eBay <laughs> looking for typewriters. And it just really lit my daughter up and she was writing film scripts. And pretty soon we were running around the house videotaping the script that she'd written all because she had this typewriter, but it was just a bit of serendipity. And I think that is something that I know parents just can't achieve with this online schooling. So I, I don't want to in any way make people feel that they should create spontaneous, exciting, loving days. But <laughs> if you have a bit more freedom and you have a parent who who has the time, then it, it is really fun to, to take that journey with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's that time is really the hard thing now when so many parents are working while trying to do school at home. I don't know if you have any tips there. <laughs> just... uh, like I said at the beginning, I really think the only thing is just to try to get through it, honestly, and just to mm-hmm. focus on your well-being and your connection and not to take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Because in my opinion, I mean, everybody will look at it differently, but in my opinion, they're going to have to reteach so much at the end of all this. Mm-hmm. It's not as though your child is going to be left behind. There, there's there's going to have to be an assumption that everybody is going to be at a different level and we have to bring everybody along together. Yeah. And if you're under any kind of pressure and time constraint and financial problems, the last thing you need to be thinking about is, you know, schoolwork in my, in my opinion, but I know it's a big stress for everyone. There's no easy solutions. Yeah, there's not, but it is, it's inspiring and encouraging and like helpful to hear about how you've kind of approached it at home with the time and and space and materials available to you. But I feel like those approaches are things that everybody can do to some extent. I think you can do it in your, I think, I just wouldn't think of it as part of the online classroom, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. I would get through whatever you feel you need to get through in that space. And then Mm -hmm. I would just think of that time with your child is time to listen to them and time to explore their thoughts. Yeah. Uh, You know, even if it's something as simple as having watched Moana together and ask them about it, who's their favorite character? Why do they like them? 
what did you think of the ocean? Let's name all the fish in the ocean. How many fish do you know? You know, just yeah. it's not about the the knowledge that they produce in that conversation, but just the chance for them to to be heard and to narrate something. And that sort of thing can happen at the dinner table. You know, it doesn't have to be a special lesson or or extra time. Right. Yes, absolutely. Would you want to talk more about your own artwork? And when I say artwork, especially thinking of all the things you do, I'm thinking of the, you know, drawing and painting and collage that you do, but also your writing and maybe your curation. I know that's a little bit like more in the past now, but would you want to talk about any of the projects you have going on now or anything sort of exciting from the past, something that's sort of like kept you going or inspired you and, and still is sort of fresh in your mind? Yeah, sure. I think the, the project I'm most proud of in, in sort of re, in recent history is yeah. this project called Doing Nothing, mm. which is I did with a photographer friend of mine who's based in London, but she came and stayed with me when I was living in Germany. And it was that very intense season of motherhood. I had a toddler, two toddlers, two toddlers. (laughs) (laughs) And I was still nursing one of them. And it was just, and I didn't speak German. (laughs) It was just all those things together. It was just a really crazy time. Yeah. And she came and stayed and we, we just, we had a lot of, sort of late nights talking about it. And we talked about it in a way like war photography. We were suddenly really curious, like why is motherhood always documented in this really genteel way? Mm. Because when you think about the pain of birth or breastfeeding or getting a toddler to take their medicine, <sighs> these are really epic experiences, aren't they? Oh. You know, we all know that as mothers, don't we? Yeah. But it's like somehow the only pictures that go up on Instagram are all the smiles with the nice dress and mm. and that's not the, that's not what's really going on, is it? And so we became really interested in trying to capture the reality of it as much as possible and a lot of the conflict and the tension. And I think we, I'd like to think that we achieved that. And that sort of carries on. A lot of my writing work is sort of in the personal essay form. And so I did a lot of exploring what motherhood felt like, especially in that landscape where I had no language. I think that really affected me, that sense that I couldn't, I just couldn't reach anyone anywhere. I couldn't reach anyone in language. I couldn't reach my children in language. (laughs) I couldn't reach myself in language because I kept trying to write. And I was, it was that season where you're just writing or making art, whatever you're doing in 10 minute intervals. Mm -hmm. I have an image of myself. I sitting at a desk and I just I would say to them, mommy's writing for 10 minutes. (laughs) You can do whatever you want. And they would just come and pile toys up and I would sit there and they would just pile more and more and more Lego and dolls and everything else. And I would just keep going. (laughs) That's how I wrote. It was just crazy. And it was such a big lesson in how to adapt to writing when, you know, I'm sure you have the same thing with art making. It's like, Previously, you need this special time that's quiet when you're inspired. I mean, that all disappeared. And so I wrote a few essays for that for that project. And then just recently, I've started letter pressing a cover for it. So I want to do a so we haven't we've printed out a limited edition that's sitting in the Goldsmith University Library, but we don't have a kind of an edition for sale. So I'd really like to do that. So I'm just printing covers for that. 
at the moment, which is really exciting. There's a letterpress collective in Bristol, and that's really cool to be able to go there and and use their equipment. It's just a very cool space. Yeah. So that's fun. It's really nice to kind of have a project that's carried on over so many years where you can, you're not in the heat of it so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And you can look at it a little bit more agnostically. That's been really nice and that I've really enjoyed doing, carrying on doing the blog and having those resources for artist parents. I've just started doing interviews on the blog. So that's exciting. So watch out for that. And then I want to get back into my curating in a slightly different way. Now I want to start running some workshops and mm-hmm. sort of incorporating some of that teaching that I've learned from homeschooling back to my art yeah. and back to writing. And so I think that that's really exciting. And I had a long season where I was really interested in climate and art and culture. Yeah. And I'm re- so we live in the countryside, so it's really, we're always surrounded by nature. So I'd like to return a little bit to that and start mm-hmm. exploring how we could how we could teach that mm-hmm. so I feel like there's a lot on the horizon the kids are finally kind of emerging into themselves a bit I'm trying to you know not hit the gas pedal too hard but I hope <laughs> got more ideas than I can execute that's the honest truth yeah I feel that so much too just trying to like prioritize and decide well what do I pursue right now yeah I think that's so true and I feel like there's different I don't, know, I don't want to say levels exactly but kind of some things are accelerated and then some things are just kind of slowly trickling mm-hmm. and I feel like that's just always changing I like to keep lots of things in motion at the same time mm-hmm. so that's that's nice it's nice to think of the, some of those projects being you know, 50 years long who knows right and some of them being done in two months time so I like that that sense of scale being different in in all the projects I do yeah and with the workshops I am very excited to hear that you're thinking about that and kind of like that's one of the things percolating would you do you have ideas fleshed out at all that you would want to talk about with like how you would do would they be combining writing and art and then also talking about any of the like the science or the policy behind climate would all of that be kind of combined in one space one workshop I, I'm not I'm not to be honest I don't know I don't 100 yeah know, that's the honest truth <laughs> but I think that it would be really nice to have a space where you could I, th- I think the climate work is probably separate mm-hmm. there's probably a space for doing climate and art as one conversation where you can sort of unpack the different cultural responses to climate change yeah. and bring and bring in some interesting artists and some interesting writers who've who've done that work already mm-hmm. I think that would definitely be one really exciting avenue I think there's also space for doing things that are a little bit more land-based because we're in the countryside mm-hmm. and that are a little bit more residential where we can really use nature itself as a kind of connecting force yeah. And I'd really like to do some things around family as well. I think that often mm-hmm. family is excluded from the conversation mm-hmm. and it would be really it would be really exciting to me to see how we could make that more inclusive mm-hmm. and how we could make artist mothers and writer mothers feel like they don't I know some 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 women really prefer to leave those things separate, but I think for for those who want who want to feel like their lives are integrated and they, some of those kind of, some of their family life is welcome in that space. It would be interesting to play with that a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, it's really exciting times, but it's, it's all sort of very 
it's like a, it's like it's in his toddlerhood, you know, yeah. <laughs> like watching it say its first words, <laughs> what kind of personality it's going to have. Oh. But I definitely feel really excited for that. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing, and I love that image too. That okay, your kids are past toddlerhood. Now you've got the next. <laughs> this is your next child. <laughs> exactly. That's why I don't have three. Right. <laughs> I also like to hear just about the nitty gritty kind of details of daily life and scheduling. When do you kind of fit in art making and writing now? I loved hearing the story of you, you know, like this is my 10 minute block. I'm going to do it even if there's chaos around me. And I feel like that is so resonant with me, with, you know, any parent who's trying to do this work. But now how does, what does that look like? Do you have, you said you do have like a space, a sort of studio space that's for you and your kids. Yeah. So I work with my kids a lot because I have Mm -hmm. that studio space where we both, we all work together. Yeah. So that, that works. Most of the time, (laughs) there's a lot of wandering away from things, but I feel like my drawing and painting life is something that I'm happy to sort of be on the slow burner path. Mm -hmm. So that's okay. The writing, I mean, I'm a big advocate for the timer. I'm a big Mm -hmm. advocate for a 10 minute timer and for how much you can fit in in 10 minutes and for daily discipline. I know it's hard and I know that we all miss days and so on, but I think if you can come up with a concept and you can roughly think in with writing, it's a little easier because you might say, okay, it's 1000 words. So you just mathematically divide it up. It's not very romantic, but you can say (laughs) write 200 words each day Mm -hmm. and it won't be so very long until you get there in that case. Right. But you have to, I think I just really had to get used to the fact that there wasn't going to be a lot of time for editing. Editing is something that for me, has to happen when the door is closed. So I used mm-hmm. I used to say you get like A, B, and C priorities. So A is like, I have to have complete silence. The door has to be closed. Mm-hmm. B is like, well, I can do it while they're around. I don't have to be completely focused, but I need like a little focus. Maybe they're having a play date, right? So they're around, but they don't need all my attention. And C is like, you know, I can really do this with my eyes closed. That might be like referencing an academic article or something. It's not, it doesn't require any thought. It's just kind of a rote task that needs to be done, or it might be folding paper if you're bookmaking or those Uh kinds of things that just tick things along. So that really, really helped me in my early days, those priorities and having a timer and just having a sense of what things you're willing to have on the back burner and what things you really want done. Yeah. Yeah. But it's hard. It is hard. That idea. I love how you, I feel like you just have the words to express a lot of the things that I also kind of do and and think about this idea of ABC priorities. And I know it's helped me a lot to have like different tasks and to kind of, I never articulated it the way you did, but I love that, you know, some of them are like, I need to sand all these things. I can bring those to the living room and do them while like I'm playing with her. And sometimes my daughter picks up some sandpaper and helps. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think parents do it a lot of times, do it intuitively and they just Mm -hmm. need to feel reassured that that's okay. I think sometimes we feel like, oh, that's not legitimate. That's not, that's not real art making if my kid is in the room or it's not real art making if the studio door isn't closed. Mm. I think a little bit like demystifying how learning happens and just opening up 
the possibility in your mind that you might be able to learn while you're lying on the floor and you might be able to make art while your kid's in the room. Ah, yes. I think that's real freedom for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like cheering for this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I say, you know, motherhood has been one of these things that we just assume happens behind closed doors and then we go off into our professional lives. And mm-hmm. like I said, I think for some women that that model really works mm-hmm. and that's great, but it doesn't work for everyone. And in which case you have to invent something that does work. And I think having a cultural conversation about that is really important. Because especially in this day with COVID, you know, work is at home and the kids are at home and there has to be some conversation about how we do this. Yeah. Not really tenable to keep all those things in their boxes. So if we can find a way to cross pollinate some of those things and be a bit forgiving when they don't work, mm-hmm. I think we, we might all feel a bit better about ourselves. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. And I keep hearing about this idea that women are, there's all these setbacks because of the way learning is happening now and that so much of it falls on women. And I mean, every time I've spoken to a parent, artist, teacher, whether they're male or female, they all have similar kind of responses to parenthood that their their studio work shifted their teaching shifted everything like it was a seismic moment <laughs> when the kids came into it yeah you know but I, I do definitely hear that societally there's still so much of it falls on women and mothers so yeah absolutely yeah. and I don't want to be idealistic you know like I said if you're under financial pressure if you're under pressure in the workplace if if your child has learning issues, if you've got a child with a disability, I mean, I mean, there's so many situations you can find yourself in. And in that case, you just have to give yourself grace. And that mm-hmm. the, this, these kind of ambitions, if you like, are really only if you have the, the mental well-being mm-hmm. to do it, you know. But I think it's, st- I think it's still worth pursuing, knowing, knowing that, knowing that it, it, it isn't for everybody. I think it's probably still, still a conversation worth having. Yeah. So I have some just kind of fun, more like get to know you questions. So one is maybe you've kind of answered this already, but what are you curious about right now? I'm curious about so much. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's really hard to choose one. I'm really (laughs) curious about permaculture. I'm really curious about that because I love the metaphor of it. Mm -hmm. I love, I love the kind, I don't, I don't know that much about it, but just the, the sense that I get of it has all these kind of repercussions for how you view your, your life and your work. And I think it's really exciting time to think about how you could use the, if you've got, if you're lucky enough to have a bit of land, how you can use it in a more productive way. Mm-hmm. And my daughter is studying soil in her science at home. And so it's really, she learned the other day that there's more life beneath the earth than on it, which really blew my mind. Wow. And so just in how we take care of the land, that's, that makes me really curious. Yes. Oh, I love that. And I love too, that I've learned things from my daughter. Like she told me the other day that starfish have eyes on each point. And I'm like, where, how do you know that? Like, where did that come from? (laughs) That is amazing. Yeah. But I love this, the things that we learn from our kids or from our students. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're full of all kinds of funny facts. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, another fun one. What is your 
I've shifted this question. So I was saying, what is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Oh yeah, my go-to Deliveroo order. Or right, like I feel bad order. even asking that now because we haven't been to a restaurant in months, so. Uh, well, we were really uh, lucky. I, I, I probably shouldn't even share this because some people <laughs> are stuck at home, but we were very lucky because we were able to take the train up to London the other day. And we have a very favorite sushi restaurant there. And they only allow one person in at a time to take their order. So it feels very clandestine. You go in there and choose all your favorite sushi and come out with this bag of goodies. And it just felt like such a treat after cooking our own food. (laughs) I really discovered there's a limit to my cooking skills. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's one of the big things I miss, sushi. Oh. I know. Well, we did, we did, we out of necessity learn how to make sushi rice at home, but it's just not the same. Yeah, it's just not quite the same. No. Oh. And is there anything else that you would want to share? I think I just want to say my heart just really, really goes out to everyone doing online schooling. And I wish I had some words of encouragement. <laughs> I wish I could, I wish there was some magic bullet that I could offer there really isn't one and it's really unfair that parents should be doing something that they don't voluntarily want to do mm-hmm. and I would just encourage people to connect with themselves and connect with their children as much as possible because that that is the root of learning if you can feel connected to yourself and to the people in your life you will learn things they might not be the things that you would learn in a classroom but you will learn things Mm -hmm. and I hope there's some solace in that yeah and is there anybody that you want to thank or give like a shout out to um my family my family my my husband who has to endure all kinds of crazy ideas of mine about homeschooling (laughs) (laughs) And indoors, a whole room of my our house being sanctioned for mess and art, <laughs> and just you know, and just my my children really for their constant enthusiasm. It's it's a delight. Yeah, oh, I love that too. And final thing, where can people connect with you online? So they can find me on my website and my blog, which is the same website. It's www.natashariveticarnack.com. And there you'll find all kinds of resources, interviews, essays. So yeah, come check it out. Yes. Go see Natasha. Go see all of her amazing writing. (laughs) And I will link to that, of course. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram as well. Same thing, at Natasha Rivet Karnak. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Natasha. This was really inspiring and encouraging, and I hope that it feels that way to listeners as well. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Rebecca. Thank you so much. It's really fun to get a chance to appear on this amazing podcast. Yes. Yay. Thank you. Natasha was so encouraging and inspiring. I talk with a lot of teaching artists who are also parents, and it's always helpful to hear how they balance it all or don't. I loved the image of Natasha writing while her children pile toys around her as she carves out just that 10 minutes for her creative work. It is possible. I also loved how Natasha talked about how words and pictures split for her and for most people, but how she's bringing them back together. She thinks of drawing as a language and uses words as drawing, combining them in her visual artwork and bouncing between visual art making and writing as creative pursuits. 
I'm excited to see how the workshops she's thinking about and nurturing come into being. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.